Well, hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim, he's Alex. This will be an EV episode. So if ice is nice for you, you may want to jump to the succeeding episode of our cast. Alex, you just took delivery of the lightning. Um, pump some heat back into our blood. Tell us just how passionate you are for this EV truck. Indeed, I did. And uh, this is our second EV truck, of course. So we have the Rivian R1T and we have the Lightning at the same time. Only one of them can stick around if, assuming we keep one of them, mind you. I don't know what the future holds. And uh, the reason a lot of folks have been asking, how on earth is it that you have three cars as long-term video uh candidates right now the answer is business lines of credit so at some point in time these are going to have to get paid off and as interest rates go up that shortens the time that we can have each of these cars so uh hit the subscribe button and click on those commercials or something like that at any rate uh so here's what's going on lightning showed up Interesting purchase process because right down to the very wire, I wasn't sure if we were going to get a markup on the vehicle because I got all the paperwork from the dealer. It showed the markup again on the truck. Uh, I called them up and I said, hey, what's going on? I thought we agreed that there was no ADM on this truck. And they said, oh, sorry, our bad. And they took it off again. So even right up to the moment where I walk into the finance manager's you know, little office with the dot matrix printer, I was really worried that it would somehow reappear. It did not, so that part of it went smoothly. But suspiciously, in the glove box, I found the dealer markup sticker that said $15,000 of markup on this truck. So was it really a mistake? I don't know. Yeah, so you got to be your own advocate. It's almost as bad as flying these days. Unless you know your rights, you can wind up getting a voucher instead of cash from an airline and a big markup from your Ford dealer. Is there a way to dodge these markups by specifying delivery to particular dealers? Yes. So if you're pre-ordering anything, do your research. Go with a dealer that has said they won't have a, pre a markup on the vehicle. There are lists available online. There's a big Google spreadsheet available with dealer trackers that that promise they aren't going to add a markup. This is my own stupid fault. I actually went to the wrong dealer. Um, I got the Lightning, which is our previous vehicle from Fremont Ford. And I meant to go back to Fremont Ford because that was really smooth. They're one of the dealers that has pledged no markups on original transactions only. So if you're the original pre-order holder, no ADM. If you choose not to take your pre-order though, and then they just have it on the lot, then there's going to be a markup. Uh, but somehow Fremont Ford and Frontier Ford are right next to each other on the Ford selection list. And I ended up with the wrong dealer. So my bad. Frontier Ford claims that they have the same policy. But again, there was that sticker in the glove box. So I'm not sure what to believe there. Yeah, it's an interesting scenario because more and more people are going to have this experience. This is a mass market vehicle. It's sold out for this year, but new orders will be taken soon. And eventually... Yep. If you believe that Ford has signed contracts to provide 600,000 vehicle battery materials per year, um, we're going to see hundreds of thousands of them, perhaps as soon as the end of next year. So how do you navigate this situation? Can you go directly to Ford and ask them to be your guide, or do you just have to dig into the internet? I'll be perfectly honest. I can go to Ford and call up my PR contacts there and say, hey, what's the deal? They can attempt to apply some pressure at some level inside this contraption. But for the average person, probably not, to be honest. There's really very little that Ford is, is able to do or is willing to do. All that they can do even on, on my end of things with the PR people is just ask. And sometimes a mild bit of pressure saying, hey, you know what? This looks bad. There's a 
person in the media that's buying a vehicle. This is not a good look. And the dealer may respond to that or not, but there's no requirement that they do. There's really not a lot that Ford can can do in that situation. Um, but on the truck itself, I have to say the Lightning is pretty impressive. If you are interested in a truck that happens to be electric and all of the pros and cons that go with that, it is the best riding half-ton truck out there, I believe. Aside from the Ram 1500 with the adaptive air suspension, that does have a really nice ride quality to it. But this is one of the best riding trucks out there. It is insanely fast. The Lightning is really, really quick. Fastest Ford F-150 that they have ever built. And I would not expect the upcoming Raptor R to be any faster than this. It's probably going to be slower. It does have some, some compromises, though. Obviously, the fact that towing range is going to be quite short is of concern to a lot of people. The easy answer there is if you are worried about that at all, don't buy one. Buy something else. Yeah, I would say lifestyle towing, you're probably fine. If you just want to take your boat down to the water or move horses around the area, if you want a road trip with a trailer, it's going to be mm -hmm. tough reasons that run the gamut from range issues to charging a vehicle with a trailer attached that can be cumbersome. Um, it's going to be a bit of a challenge over distance. But yeah. around the farm locally, how, how has it been? Have you had a chance to load it up or hitch a trailer? We've done all of the above. And... Keep in mind, your situation is really going to determine whether or not it works for you. If you truly look at your towing and you say, well, I am truly only ever towing within 50 miles, 60 miles of home, and that is it ever, 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 it's going to be just fine. Even at 10,000 pounds, even pulling uh, a big SUV on a flatbed trailer, towing a big boat, etc., totally fine. If you want to go beyond 150 miles, of towing with really any sort of camper or RV or big boat, then it's going to be a problem. We did a lot of towing trials with the Lightning and with the Rivian, et cetera. The Rivian is going to do a better job efficiency-wise towing, especially those longer distances. You might be able to get 175, 200 miles out of a Rivian if you treat it really gently. Still not going to be a great option if you want a road trip with those larger trailers. If you're hauling, then you can expect about a 10 to 12% drop in efficiency, which is what we noticed with 1,300 pounds in the Lightning. We just did that yesterday. Similar drop in the Rivian, a little bit more efficient there, about 11% drop in terms of its range. And that means that for most folks out there, if you are pragmatic and you factor that the 320-mile rated Lightning is really going to be about 270 to 280 miles in a road trip, deduct 11% off of that for a completely loaded model, then you're right in the same range as, as a decent number of, of mid-range EVs out there. It's going to be fairly practical. And of course, if you're simply hauling or you have a camper on top, something like that, then you will be able to stop at a DC fast charge station. It's just the trailering situation that can be tricky there. Now, it's interesting that the week you take joint possession of these vehicles, now you've got a fleet. Motor Trend did a test with the F-150 Lightning. They took the Rivian. Um, charging was what really really stood out to me. The Ford overperformed. It's rated at 150 kilowatt hours, but it charged at 174. The Rivian charged at about 204 peak, but it also didn't hold the peak state of charge as long as the Ford stayed near its peak state of charge. So in the real world, have you found that these two charge equivalent? Does the Rivian still have the edge or has the Ford come from behind? I thought that 
review from Motor Trend was weirdly nitpicky here and there, to be perfectly honest. Um, after having both of these trucks, and I know a lot of the people at Motor Trend, so I know where some of this is coming from. A few things to keep in mind with their tests. First off, they were testing the range with trailers that they did not give us good details on. We don't know which trailer was what. They did say weight ratings, and we have some pictures of uh, what looked like a Ford Astro van on the back of a uh, trailer. But we don't know what the trailer specifications were, the tires that were on the trailer, the dimensions of box trailers, RVs, etc. Some of that is unknown. The other thing to keep in mind is they were testing at higher speeds. Anytime you go faster in anything, your efficiency is going to drop through the floor because wind resistance is not a linear relationship. The faster you go, you know, if you go from 30 miles to 60 miles an hour, you aren't doubling your wind resistance. It's more of an exponential relationship. Really, really important to keep in mind. They were towing at 70 miles an hour. I can't replicate that test in California because here the maximum speed limit for a trailer is 55. Technically, everybody speeds. We're going to go 60, maybe 62 with the trailer. We're not going to go 70 miles an hour with the trailer. Um, so that is definitely something important to, to remember. Uh, they did their testing in the Midwest, not in their Southern California office. The other thing that you should know when charging is that the charging station that you have access to is going to be a big, big factor here. And I think that's some of where things started to go a little bit wrong with their setup. So when you do the math here, and I will pull up a quick calculator because my memory is bad on some of these exact voltages here. Uh, but a 400 volt EV should be able to do 200, 230 kilowatts peak, something like that. And if I pull up our lightning charging video. Well, I look sorts through the charging videos. I remind our viewers that uh, there is also an EV buyer's guide YouTube channel. So if you're wondering where all of this supplementary EV content is, it lives in its own ecosystem. There is Alex on Autos, which is Auto Buyer's Guide, and there's also EV Buyer's Guide, where you can find all of the in-depth EV content, including charging speeds. What I found most striking about the Rivian and Ford test was that the Rivian underperformed in terms of uh, both its peak charging rate and the time it stayed at a high rate. The Ford overperformed because it's only rated at 150, but charged over 170, and it stayed there longer. Mm -hmm. um, I will say Ford's Ford's description of charging is a little bit tricky because they made this distinction that it, it overperformed, that it was only rated for 150. Yeah. And when I was at the launch event, that's not exactly how Ford described it. Ford said that its peak charging rate should be around 170 was what okay. with the information that I was given. So with that in mind, in my testing, it actually underperformed a little bit. So it, it ended up at, I think, uh, 160, let's see, 168. I'm rolling through the footage here. 168 was our peak charge rate. So pretty close to what Ford actually said. I will say that when we're talking charging times, I was recently speaking this week to a number of, of people in my own industry, other automotive journalists that really have troubles grasping some of the charging details here. Some manufacturers on their spec sheets will say at 350 kilowatt station, you can charge in 18 minutes. This is really what Kia and Hyundai do. They say at 350 kW, 18 minutes. This does not mean the peak rate of the vehicle is 350 kilowatts. That means that if you go to a 350 kilowatt rated station, it will take that long. The actual draw from the vehicle is is going to be whatever the manufacturer has specified. And for some reason, on a lot of Ford spec sheets, 
they only put the charge times at a 150 kilowatt charger rather than a 200 or 250 or 350 kilowatt charger. I don't know exactly why. And I think that's where some of the confusion entered into the equation. Because speaking with the Lightning's chief designer at Ford, they told me the peak rate was 170. So I'm assuming that somebody in Motor Trend just got their numbers confused. Quite possible. Also possible that they confused the charge rate with the, uh, the Mach-E. Yeah, um, but one sixty eight was our peak on the Lightning. Two oh five was our peak on the Rivian. But with the Rivian, because it's really pushing at the boundary of what a four hundred volt charger can do, the charger specifications are very important. So the max draw in terms of current that any EV currently will pull down is around five hundred amps. There aren't too many stations that will deliver reliably deliver 500 amps. This is kind of a challenge for electric vehicles. And this is why the voltage is increasing on newer generations of EVs, 800 volts, 1,000 volts, et cetera, because you can still draw 500 amps. So the way you get more power into the vehicle is by bumping up the voltage net, allows you to pull more power down. But when we take a look at some of the vehicles that are on there, like the Rivian battery pack, it's right there in the sort of mid-level voltage ranges of 400 volt packs. So getting that that peak power out of the, the uh, charge station can be tricky depending on how the stars align. Also tricky for a Hummer EV because its voltage is right around 800 volts rather than a thousand volts like we find in the Lucid Air, which is why the Lucid is much more able to keep that, that peak charge rate consistent than we find in the Hummer. That really helps the, the power delivery there. I think that both of these are fine as far as the 10% to 80% window. They're very, very similar. The Rivian, if you can really get a good charging session going and you don't have any dips because of cooling issues, et cetera, you can get a consistently faster charge rate. The battery is also a teeny bit smaller, but if you want to charge either of these from 1% to 100%, as you might want to do on a road trip, it's going to take about two hours in either of them. So now, a topic that's come up, and it, it bears mentioning because this may not be unique to the F-150 Lightning, but in general, people have said that the F-150 still feels and rides like a body-on-frame truck, and mm -hmm. that the Rivian feels considerably more buttoned down and refined. Would you say that's the case, or how would you phrase the, how would you phrase the comparison between how they actually drive and ride? Yeah, I would say the ride quality is, is pretty similar. The F-150 is the best riding half-ton truck outside of a full four-corner air suspension, but it has an independent rear suspension, unlike the Ram that has the four-corner air suspension. So when you're on broken pavement, especially in corners, it's much more settled in the F-150 than any half-ton truck, period, currently on sale. It feels much more like a Ford Expedition or a Chevy Suburban or a, wa a Wagoneer or Grand Wagoneer because the suspension actually is more similar to those full-size body-on-frame SUVs. But the feel inside is still half-ton truck. Yes, It has a very similar steering ratio, likely the same steering rack, although we can't be 100% sure. But the, the way the steering feels, very, very F-150. It's big. You're, you feel high off the ground, even though ground clearance is actually lower than the Rivian. You feel high off the ground. It has that half-ton truck feel. The Rivian feels more like a Grand Cherokee with a pickup truck in the back. It feels a little bit more crossover-like in some ways, but it still has really high ground clearance, as you'd expect in more of an off-road tuned truck. So you can, you can lower it down to about nine and a half inches, 
which is about an inch more than you will ever get in a Lightning. And then it goes all the way up to 15 inches of ground clearance. So lots and lots of ground clearance, pretty high off the road, but it has a more stable, more, more luxury car vibe to it. It's interesting, this week I also have a BMW i4 M50, and it occurred to me that if BMW was ever to try and make an EV truck, it would probably look and feel kind of like the Rivian. Now, we have had very official clarification on what the Rivian is structurally. It is a body-on-frame vehicle with a twist. The body and the frame are bonded together with glue and with with bolts. So it's not welded together. And this is really the distinction between a unibody vehicle and a body-on-frame vehicle. So General Motors will try and parse their words, claim the Hummer EV and the Silverado EV are this new classification of body frame integral. But you know what? That phrase has been used before to describe unibody. So it's a unibody truck, both of them. Hummer, Hummer truck, um, Silverado truck, all unibody vehicles. There is not a separate frame. You cannot just unbolt something, drive the frame along the road. In a Rivian, you actually can. You can unbolt the body from the frame. There's glue there, but you can separate it. As we've seen Monroe and a bunch of other people tear down their, their, their Rivians, you can unbolt it. The frame drives along the road because it has frame rails, batteries in the frame, front motor, rear motor, bolted there, suspension, etc. bolts to the frame. The difference is that Rivian is using the body to add some structural rigidity to the combination. So the reason there's so many more bolts than you'd find in a regular body-on-frame truck. In a regular body-on-frame truck, there are only a few bolts really that, that attach the frame to the body. The reason we find more in the Rivian is because there is some portion of structural rigidity being offered by the body. It's not a huge amount, but it still improves the structural rigidity of the combination, which is why it has to be more firmly attached. But it is separable, and design-wise, that's how it's easy to do vans, SUVs, future vehicles with this relatively common skateboard design. So there were definitely some development advantages for Rivian's design there, but it, it makes it a bit more complicated than a traditional body-on-frame vehicle, and also a little bit confusing in the classification. So now, interesting that since we last spoke about EVs, there's been a little bit of a legislative development that's probably less relevant for Rivian, though more for Ford, mm -hmm. given their anticipated price points. There is a new bill working its way through Congress and the Senate, and at a bare minimum, it's going to revive some of the EV tax credits, but it's going to do it in a different way at point of sale, and it's going to create a new used EV credit. So I'd love for you to run through what's new in this bill, uh, what price ranges it'll benefit, and what manufacturers will benefit the most. Well, the key thing that we should know now is that the bill as it stands does not include a point of sale provision. It is talked about, it may or may not be included, and that would be probably the biggest difference versus what we have now. Right now, you buy your EV, tax season comes along, you claim your tax credit, but you have to have a minimum tax liability of $7,500 to get the full $7,500 tax credit. If you don't pay $7,500 of income tax, it's not going to give you the full benefit. The benefit will be reduced by whatever it is you actually end up paying. Then, of course, there are other rules around alternative minimum tax, et cetera, that you have to concern yourself with. The key important thing to know is that it is entirely possible for 
say, a Midwestern family of two with a reasonable income that owns their own home and has two children to actually not pay that much in taxes. So this tax credit may be fairly small for that kind of situation, which is a good target demographic for an EV because they have the ability to charge at home. Maybe they have the income, et cetera, to support it. But because they have child tax credits and other tax credits, they may not get the full benefit. If it turns into more of a point of sale credit, that would have a big boon for mid-level and lower, end, lower income shoppers to be able to perhaps afford an EV. But those details are not firm yet. So right now it is just a tax credit. But here's how it goes. So currently the tax credit is limited to IRS corporations that are building cars, 200,000 units. This means Toyota and Lexus, they're running out. They've actually, I think, officially expired and it's going to start to sunset next year. Tesla's is gone. All of the General Motors divisions gone as well. Hyundai and Kia, though, Volvo and Polestar, they're separate. So they get their own pool of tax credits and they're not really too interested in some of the changes in these legislative uh, actions because currently there's an advantage for them. So the way this would work is there'd be a new $7,500 credit. It would also include hydrogen vehicles, which are currently not included in the $7,500 credit, but it would require some changes to what qualifies. And the big things would be North American parts content and North American materials content. So the battery materials, including the raw materials, ore excavation, et cetera, would have to be at least 40% North American sourced or sourced from countries that have free trade agreements with the United States. That's a key loophole. Um, then that would climb up to about 80% after, I believe it's about five or six years. It actually is a sliding scale. Each year it has to be more and more North American parts content. It would also only qualify for vehicles that are MSRP under $80,000, that are trucks, vans, and SUVs, or sedans under $55,000. This would mean lucid airs excluded, top end trims of Rivians, Lightnings, et cetera, all excluded from this legislation. Um, every Hummer currently built excluded, first Silverado excluded as well, because all those first run Silverados be six figure cars. Uh, also, there's a family income cap of $300,000 adjusted gross income or single filer $150,000 gross income. So. Definitely some key limitations versus what we've seen up to date. It could help spawn more affordable EVs or more affordable trims of current EVs, though. Now, the interesting thing to me was that for the first time, they put a potential credit in place for buyers of used cars, mm -hmm. provided the value of the car is capped at 25000 Exactly. I understand what purpose. I mean, obviously, this is a green initiative. They want to see more EVs on the road. Does that does buying a used car actually help to promote the sales of, of any electric vehicle or hasten the recycling of an older internal combustion car? It is an interesting question. It does have the potential of improving the secondary market. So it could improve resale values of some less expensive, easier to buy EVs, but also it would give a different segment of society, the ability to buy an EV, depending on exactly how the tax credits are formulated. So here's how this would go. The used EV tax credit is $4,000 or 30% of the used vehicle's value, whichever is less. But it also has different income testing requirements. It would only apply to EVs, used EVs that are two years old or older, 
$25,000 maximum value, so no flipping your Hummer EV truck and getting a $4,000 credit, and lower income testing limits. So $150,000 couple uh, joint filer adjusted gross income, $75,000 single uh, adjusted gross income. So big difference there. This would mean basically Nissan Leaf, Chevy Bolt, Kona EV, something like that, coming off of a short-term lease or maybe a two-year purchase arrangement, something like that. That customer would be able to get theoretically a tax credit on it, but it it is this weird sliding scale. So not only do you have to owe $4,000 of taxes, but also it's the 4,000 or 30%, whichever is smaller. So the actual tax credit could be fairly minor. And whether or not this becomes a point of sale uh, credit with a used car dealership also is a bit in question. Okay, so this is an interesting and very fluid situation. We'll keep you posted on it because it's mm -hmm. a bill. It hasn't been passed by either House of Congress, and there's still quite a bit of negotiation. Um, we will actually revisit that in this in the future. For now, just remember that automakers that are currently mm -hmm. out of the game could be back in position to get the credit. Uh, used cars are now yep. being mentioned as part of the deal, and there are going to be hard caps on how much money you can make to receive credits, as well as how much the vehicle itself costs in order to receive a credit. But plenty of asterisks, which are important to keep in mind. So the battery materials would have to come from North, North America or, again, a free trade country with a deal with the U.S. Battery manufacturing also has to be in North America or one of these free trade companies. And this has a really big consequence. So 50% of the battery volume would have to be there through the end of 2023. And then it ratchets up 10% a year until it's 100% North American required to get the tax credit by 2029. This means that a decent number of EVs may not qualify. For instance, the rumor mill is saying that Tesla is gonna be using CATL batteries in less expensive vehicles in North America. Those are Chinese made batteries. Chinese batteries and Chinese materials are specifically excluded from any of this. So 0% can come from China, otherwise it is absolutely disqualified. This also means that the Polestar 2, which is also rising up the EV sales charts, currently it's manufactured in China, that's definitely a big problem. We also don't know exactly what's going to happen with the BZ4X and Solterra, Toyota and Subaru's joint venture EV. Those battery packs are made in China currently. CATL batteries in the all-wheel drive versions. Only the front-wheel drive Toyota gets a Panasonic battery pack. And Ford has also inked a deal with CATL to provide entry-level battery packs for a wide variety of vehicles. So if the raw materials are coming from somewhere or the batteries are manufactured from somewhere outside of these select areas, then that's going to be a big thing. Interesting twist, though, is the way that some of these other EVs might sort out. Because in the clear with free trade agreements with the U.S. are, of course, NAFTA, Canada and Mexico. Totally fine to manufacture there. Also, Taiwan. We don't see too many batteries coming out of Taiwan, but that could change because that could be a place to build batteries to escape this free trade loophole. South Korea also has a free trade agreement with the United States. So it would appear that Hyundai, Kia, and Genesis are all in the clear with this because they may be getting all the benefit without changing their manufacturing process at all. And Australia is a key component in this because they're a source of a lot of rare earth materials and they have a free trade agreement with the US. So if your rare earth materials come from Australia and your batteries manufactured in Taiwan, but your vehicle's made in Mexico, that might still qualify for this tax credit. 
And also important, recently I alluded earlier to the fact that GM and Ford have recently announced uh, raw material sourcing agreements to provide batteries for about 1,600,000 vehicles between them. And some of the nations being mentioned in addition are Argentina and Indonesia. And they were specifically attempting to avoid reliance on China, both for political reasons and for uh, sourcing and access reasons. Yeah, and those locales are also uh, ones with free trade agreements with the United States. So pretty safe bet as far as the way this legislation has been crafted, as far as them still being able to get the tax credit. So this is definitely going to be in the news again, but a recurring topic that we've already seen is this notion that EVs are on the cusp of taking over. And I think <laughs> you're an EV fan, but you don't necessarily believe this is the case. Talk about how yeah. they're at the moment and why they're not going to double every single year consecutively for, say, a decade. This is, uh, this is such an interesting hot-button topic because nothing seems to rankle EV fans and EV detractors alike like the rise of the EV pickup truck. I was really quite shocked the amount of response we had on the Facebook page when we announced that the lightning was coming. Those posts absolutely blew up for good reasons and for bad reasons, definitely. This is a huge culture war in America right now. Electrification and what it means. People come out of the woodwork. I'm being forced to buy an EV truck. And I said, jokingly, I'm like, oh my, did Nancy Pelosi come and knock on your door and just like arm wrestle you until you bought a Hummer? Like, I'm so confused. How does this forcing of EV truck purchasing work? Is is AOC down there, you know, know, holding on to your leg and not letting you go to the Ford dealer? Are they making you go somewhere else? I don't understand how that works. At any rate, um, EV trucks don't work for everyone. And you know what? Here's the deal. You, if you don't like an EV, don't buy an EV. If you're worried about towing more than 150 miles, don't buy a Lightning. There are so many more trucks out there to buy than a Lightning. Ford maybe, maybe, maybe hopes to have a run rate of 150,000 Lightnings a year by sometime maybe next year late. So we're talking very small numbers of electric trucks. Ford sold 750,000 trucks last year, three quarters of a million trucks. Exactly zero of them were electric, let's be clear. And this year, if all goes well, Ford's truck volume will be 800,000 trucks a year. And guess how many gasoline trucks were sacrificed on the altar of the Lightning? It would be zero because Lightning seems to be adding to the F-150 sales volume, which is exactly why Ford is excited about it, Um, because it's bringing in new customers that are buying F-150s that haven't bought it before. They get to lower the cost of the F-150 components for them because if you could sell an extra $100,000 trucks, then your dashboard components, your seats, your metal stamping, all that theoretically could become less expensive. So vantage for everybody. But let's look at the numbers. So 2021, 3.4% of the US car market was plug-in hybrid or battery electric. Plug-in hybrid is included here. That is 526,000 vehicles in 2021. The wildest expectations seem to be about 30% by 2030. That's nine years away. Theoretically, 4.2 million battery electric vehicles are plug-in hybrids. That number might be achievable if they're leaning really hard on the plug-in hybrid front. But growth in, in mining, battery production, battery capacity, all of that has to ramp up very, very rapidly over a very, very short time to ever hit those kinds of projections. 
I'm not entirely clear that that is possible. These are projections, these are desires, and that's probably the most important thing to keep in mind, especially with some of the legislative requirements in California. California is notorious for legislating things, quote unquote, and I'm doing my air quote thing here because they will set out rules in advance. They will say, this is our target, this is our goal by 2020, by 2030, by 2040, whatever. And they're constantly getting adjusted. California's had a clean air, zero emissions, quote unquote, mandate for decades and decades now. It, do we live in a California where you can no longer buy a super duty truck? No, because the laws have changed and they keep getting updated. Deadlines get missed. They make new deadlines because that's how reality works. And I also think it's important uh, just to mention that the increases we've seen are increasingly going to be limited by things like the size of the overall car market, the availability of battery materials, the availability of charging infrastructure, all of the low-lying fruit of people who have early adapter inclination, that's been picked up. From here on out, there's going to be a lot of conquest sales, of people who are profoundly EV skeptic. Now, not all of these have to tow four horses 400 miles mm -hmm. every single day of their life. There are going to be people who are they're going to be people who are constitutionally opposed to this idea. They're going to be people who, for practical reasons, could not adopt an EV under the current pricing and range conditions. Um, EV charging for non-Teslas is still one of the most miserable experiences in the world of car ownership. Seriously, if you want to take as much of the misery of flying and transpose it onto driving, that's about as good as you can get working with public charging networks outside of the Tesla supercharger system. I would They're say really <laughs> I, I, that's that's probably an exaggeration. I let me say I, you know, I've, I've we've had multiple EVs. I test them all the time. <clears throat> the reality, and this is this is a critical thing for people that are seriously on the fence. If you are not a fan of EVs, then you're not a fan of EVs. Nothing I can say will ever convince you otherwise. And if you're a diehard fan, then good for you. But if you are honestly in the middle and you're looking for objective thought process around living with an EV, the reality is very few EV owners public charge on a regular basis. The true. vast majority of charging for, for even plug-in hybrids happens at home or at the office where the charging experience is reliable, dependable, and exactly the same every single day and does not occupy as much time as people think. The the best use case example for the average vehicle, the average American, and again, not talking about use cases that are outside the norm. If you drive 500 miles a day, good for you. This is not for you. If you don't ever drive, why are we talking about a new car? This is also not for you. We're talking about, you know, the middle, middle part of America, the heart of the new car market in America, which largely skews towards homeowners, things like people like that. And this is another thing to remember that when we're talking about EV adoptions among apartment dwellers, et cetera, generally speaking, new car purchasers skew towards higher income levels, higher rates of homeownership, higher likelihood of being able to integrate EVs into their lifestyle than used car owners do. And that is a different kind of problem that we ought to address later because that is a concern for people that don't own their home. But for people that do, you plug your vehicle in at night and you wake up in the morning and it is fully charged. Even if you don't bother installing a home charging station, if you're driving 30, 40 miles a day, most new EVs will charge in that time with the included car charge cord that comes with the car. And you drive to work, your employer, maybe they pay for charging, maybe they don't pay for charging, maybe they subsidize a little bit, whatever. Either you charge there or you don't, and then you go back home and you charge again. 
So in this construct, your five seconds of pull in the driveway, pull in the garage, grab the charge cord, plug it into the car, this time means that you never have to visit a gas station again. And that's probably the biggest change for people is that 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 time you stop at a gas station is completely removed from this thought process. And I have to say that for me, that is the biggest thing that you will notice is that you don't spend that five to 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, depending on your situation, going off your charted course to the gas station, especially if you want to find the cheapest gas. Some people will drive way out of the way to find it. That is removed from this equation. So it's very simple. And if you are public charging, then you start to learn which charging networks, et cetera, are easy to use and which aren't, how the apps work. There's a bit of a learning curve. Can't deny that. But the first time you bought a car and you had to figure out how the pumps work, the first time there was a chip reader, the first time there was a state where you couldn't pump your own gas because that's weird and it's still a thing. Um, the first time you drive through one of those and you hop out of your car, it's a learning curve. It's very much the same with, with charging. I have very, very infrequently come across a charging station that absolutely did not work. Oh, I found a lot of them. I was at Costco where I always go shopping. Costco pulled all its chargers. I was at Valley Forge National Park this weekend. Every single charger was out of commission. Um, and here's like the counterpoint to all that. If you're a rideshare driver, an increasingly large proportion of drivers on the road are, then you've got to have a Tesla supercharger compatible car or your business is just not viable. Um, I would I would argue that that financially you'd be better off with a hybrid than an EV to begin with. If you're if you're a rideshare driver, why would I want to spend 30 minutes charging anything? No. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Like, that's one reason why a pure EV doesn't work for that ever expanding mm -hmm. like job cohort. Plus, yeah. I've always lived in cities. And while some cities, you know, I mean, New York is in a unique category because most people in Manhattan don't own cars. Uh, but in most cities, you do drive around quite a bit. And whether you're renting in a city or you have a townhouse, it's very difficult to get to par public charging infrastructure. Most of the time, you're parking on the street. Um, and then I've always lived in apartments. And if I didn't have weird agreements to like pirate power from an open window through an extension cord at work, um, mm -hmm. it would be very difficult to charge up my Chevy Volt. Now, the Volt's nice because I can also use it as a hybrid. And I'll be honest, just having 40 chargeable miles, I hardly ever run the gas engine. So I'm a believer in the mm -hmm. hybrid. That's a plug. And that is the tricky part here is that, you know, clearly if you if you hardly ever fill with gas, then you hardly ever drive over the average for the average American, which is usually about 30 miles a day is what most surveys say the average average American drives. All EVs will sac satisfy that. Yeah. The problem is if you live in communal housing, if you live in a high rise, if you live in an apartment, if you live in a condo or a townhome, you can own your condo, own your townhome, still have a problem charging because the homeowner association, even if you have a garage, may not allow you to make those kinds of modifications to your garage because of the way the wiring and community is set up in these, these uh, non-single family home situations. So at the moment, EV adoption, I suspect, is probably going going to hit a, a much slower acceleration curve. I mean, the, the, the rate of adoption is going to climb and then it's going to stop at the point where we have satisfied the maybe, maybe I want an EV people that own a home. The moment you start moving into the maybe I want an EV, but I don't own a home, it's going to be a much harder construct to convince people to do that unless you can somehow incentivize employers to start putting in charging stations. And that's something that we don't see in this legislation that's come up is where is the 
$10,000 tax credit for employers to put in charging stations at the office. Uh, charging at home, installing your charging stations actually be relatively simple. You know, maybe you have the handyman down the street do it. Maybe they pull a permit. Maybe they don't pull a permit, whatever that might be. But if you're an employer like, like I am with 10 people on the other side of that wall and a small business here, and I need to contact my commercial landlord and they say, well, okay, we'll do charging stations because I've had this conversation. Okay, we'll do charging stations, but they have to be pedestal stations for for the general use of the people. They cannot be reserved parking spots, so you got to have enough so everybody can use them. Uh, they want the pedestal charging stations in the lot, which means you have to dig up the lot. You have to then install all the wiring. It has to be permitted because now we're out in the open where the city can see everything patching of that, patching of the concrete, patching of the asphalt. The pedestal charging stations are freakishly expensive for some reason too. Keep that one in mind. Um, you want a charge point charging station that actually has card readers so you can track the charging, charge your employees, or maybe you offer free charging for employees, charge paid charging for everybody else. Those charging stations are about $1,500 to $2,000 a pop for those EVSEs versus 300 bucks for one at home. And then you have to have all the communications and wiring infrastructure for them. It's an expensive proposition, which is why we got around this loophole by drilling a hole in the back wall of our of our, our uh, unit here in, in this business park, because that part we do control and we slapped a juice box enterprise on the back. So you have to pull up to our, our roll up door for our employees to charge. We do have an employee now with a plug in hybrid vehicle. So that's what he has to do. He has to pull in, scan his card, plug it in, and then we can actually bill him 50%. So we've off, we offer 50% subsidized EV charging here. Um, but, but I'm saying this, this is, this is a, an impediment to adoption for other people. I have, I have employees that live in apartments. Are, are they going to buy an EV and risk the single charging stall? Maybe it's full, maybe it's not, you know, maybe, you know, one employee went off to a long lunch Maybe they said, you know, I can't take it anymore today, so I'm just going to turn up somewhere and leave my car plugged in. All of these things are problems, and you don't want to be caught without a charge. So I completely understand that problem with this situation. And I live in a high EV adoption state in the model of EV adoption areas. San Jose, the 10th largest city in the country, is a sea of suburbia. The tallest building in the 10th largest city in America is 22 stories. Everything is a sea of single family homes, single floor business parks and two story, you know, uh, you know, uh, things around the core, like two story business parks, maybe here and there, two story single family homes. That's what this place looks like. Perfect environment for electric vehicles, Mediterranean climate. It's never that hot. It's never that cold. Batteries love it here. And these are still the kind of problems we see with EV adoption. Now, I'm committed to an EV for regular transportation. I still like internal combustion for sports cars and, and performance sedans. Um, but for the daily grind, I'm good with EVs. The lengths I have gone to to be able to charge my stupid Chevy Bolt, and it's maybe 10 kilowatt hours of usable capacity. I've had extension cords running out the window of apartments. I've had to make deals with my landlords to have extension cords running across parking lots. <laughs> I've got an open window at a guest house that's next to my company office and an extension cord out the window of that guest house snakes across the parking lot to my vault. And if it weren't for the fact that I can plug it into a standard 120 volt mm -hmm. outlet, 
with a three prong plug and an extension cord, I would not be able to charge my car. Like if I needed a 240 volt, like conventional J1772, I would be out of luck. I'm lucky that like a kid's power wheels, my car plugs into a wall and that's enough. But, you know, you're not supposed to charge with an extension cord. Right. I'm not charged with the extension cord. And I've also never had an apartment that guaranteed me a parking space or, I mean, my company's had a succession of offices. We've never had any version, despite many customers with Teslas and Rivians and now Lucid. We've never had a conventional, like, level two charger here. So yep. even for, like, a committed EV guy, sometimes that commitment requires a little bit of absurdity. Yep. I mean, my office complex is uh, right next door to a, a electrician and electrician's company, and they've got uh, 40, 50 fleet vehicles and you know tons of employees with electric cars, not a single electric car charger and they're electricians. They could do it themselves. <laughs> All right, Alex, <laughs> where can the audience find your EV content online? Yeah, so be sure and head over to youtube.com slash EV Buyer's Guide, or you can just Google EV Buyer's Guide. We'll pop up right there. You can, of course, find us at Facebook at Alex on Autos. That's the uh, the umbrella, I guess you could say. And then, of course, you can find us on the regular channel, Alex on Autos, on YouTube as well. There's also, of course, the YouTube podcast if you want to see what we look like and uh, see any you know crazy hand motions that we're doing or the air quotes that are always important. I'm Tim. He's Alex. And thanks for logging on. See you guys later. Thank you.